And Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. This is increment 115. Incidentally, Psalm 115 is a phenomenal psalm. It's, a, uh, it's iconoclastic. It crushes idols. And we're going to Hebrews chapter 4. Ultimately, 414, I have exegeted or at least translated all the way through verse 10 of chapter 5. And we might leap into that fray pretty soon. Today, incidentally, I'm wearing this shirt in honor of my friend Ronnie Campbell because he's expressed how much he likes it. And you can't have it, Ronnie. It's too slender. You know, I'm, I'm too slender for you. And uh, it's not Armani, but it is Untuck It. So, okay. Increment 115, and we'll open with prayer. And Father, we thank you for the access that you've provided through your son to the throne of grace. And it's to that throne that we are urged to approach. And we do even now in time of need. We need the timely help of the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that you've given to us. And we thank you that he's present in us to teach and to guide us into truth. And most of all, to glorify your son. And may that occur today through this message and in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Like the slave with one talent in the parable, we have one job, one unambiguous task in life that we must perform as believers, regardless of our vocation or spiritual gifts. That job is well defined by the Holy Spirit through the teaching pastor in Hebrews, and as partakers of a heavenly calling, in Hebrews 3.1, we are tasked with holding fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. That's our one job. It's delineated in Hebrews 3.6. It is to also called to hold firmly the reality. We've studied that word, and it's a very important word, Hupostasis, H-O-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hupostasis is found in Hebrews 1.3. It's found in 3.14. It's found in Hebrews 11.1 as faith is the hypostasis, the reality of things hoped for. So our job is to hold firmly the reality the substance of hope for things until the end. And that means until the objective of completion is reached. And so, again, if we hold firmly until the end, that which we had at the beginning, we will have fulfilled our task in life. To hold this hope until the end is to hold fast the confession of Jesus, the Son of God, until the end of our lives on earth and in these mortal bodies. That's our task. Call it a lifelong task once we've been awakened to faith. This task is endless in this world because though we may break through to a discernible Christian maturity, crack the maturity barrier as we once called it, and become what the scripture calls teleoi, T-E-L, yes, it's related to the word 
Tetelestai, T-E-L-E-I-O-I, Teleoi. You might say they're graduates from a certain level of spiritual education. There are Christians who break through a discernible barrier unto and into Christian maturity. Christian maturity is actually a status in this world. It's, it's attainable in this life. And it's found in Philippians 3.15, Colossians 1.28, Colossians 4.12, where that maturity is related to full confidence. It's also found in Hebrews 5.14, where we'll be going fairly soon in our study. We never attain in this life to the status of what Paul called ex-anastasis, that's e x. A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S. Ex-anastasis. You'll notice the word anastasis, A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S, in the Greek is resurrection. Ex-anastasis means an out-resurrection, literally. The way Paul uses it in Philippians 3.11 is to describe the status or condition that he had not attained and to which he pressed on. So we never really in this life attain to the status of ex-anastasis, though we keep pressing on. Philippians 3.12 to 14. Ex-anastasis, therefore, is a fully attained state and condition in which one has been so brought out from the realm of those who are dead in sins in this world as to be perfectly resembling one who has risen bodily from the dead. We're not going to get there in these mortal bodies. Not even Paul. It is, in other words, to have fully attained the stature of human development that is exemplified in Christ Jesus. We're going to get into a human development analogy and into an educational analogy in Hebrews 5:11 to 14 but in Ephesians 4:13 all of humanity is slated to come to a solidarity which is the unity of the faith and to the measure of the stature of human development that is only now in Christ Jesus we'll all attain it someday it is to have attained exonastasis again a word used only in Philippians 3.11 in the New Testament. It is to have attained a stature of the likeness of Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Not going to get there, not in this life. But we press on. That's our one task. In fact, Paul said, one thing I do. N-D-E. E-N-D-E. One thing. But one. In Philippians 3.13. This is our one job. This is our one task. This morning I woke up with that thought. You have one job. And I thought, well, is it to teach and preach the word of God? No, because regardless of our spiritual gifts or even of our vocation, our one job is to hold fast our hope, the hope of the gospel as we're going to see it. Now, I'm going to hit this from several angles today, 
and the Holy Spirit will be able to arrange it in order and yet with some creative artistry in your mind so that you'll know what the Holy Spirit's saying to the church today through this message. Now the Bible says that when we see him, we will be like him. That's at the moment of the beatific vision, as the old timers used to call it, the time when we are in the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. When we see him, we will be like him. That's a guarantee. We will be like him him. At that moment, we will be also, Paul put it this way, that's John, incidentally, the elder, John the elder in 1 John 3, 2. Paul said the same thing in different words by saying that we will be conformed into the image of God's Son. Please notice, we will be like him, we will be conformed into his image. Then remember Genesis 1, where Elohim, God in the Greek Theos, said, let us make man, let us make human beings in our own image and likeness. Image, Romans 8, 26, likeness, 1 John 3, 2. So, the scripture says that we will see him, and when we do, we will be like him. And at that moment, we will be conformed into the image of God's Son. So, God has predestined us to this or predestinated us to this, according to Romans 8.29, because as many as God justifies, he also glorifies. Glorification is inextricably linked to our conformity to his Son, the Lord of glory, the glorious Christ, our Savior, who is even now crowned with glory and honor. He whom we see with the eyes of our heart ever so vaguely and through a glass darkly, we will one day see face to face with perfect clarity in his immediate presence. And the only way to see him as he is, is to be as he is as we see him. Therefore, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. God has predestined us to this. It's guaranteed because it's an act of God and a promise of God. Again, God, as many as he justifies, he glorifies in Romans 8.30. And it's a funny thing. God justifies the ungodly in Romans 4.5 because Christ died for the ungodly in Romans 5.6. That's how God demonstrates his love in 5.8 and saves us through Christ's blood, justifies us through Christ's blood. Not only that, we're justified means all are justified. If God glorifies all whom he justifies and he justifies all in Romans 5.18, then it seems that God has in mind to glorify all of the human race, therefore bring all human beings into the stature of the measure, or the measure of the stature of human development that is exemplified in the risen Christ. I hope you're getting some of this doctrine because it's coming out now. This doctrine is being developed right now. Not before, but now. I create them now. I make them now. Isaiah 48, 7, says the Lord. So when the elder says, we shall be like him, the word is homoio, H-O-M-O-I-O-I. Homoioi, homoioi, H-O-M, 
O-I, O-I. See, first we had teleoi, now we have homeoi, and that means like him. Like him. We shall be like him. That's 1 John 3, 2. So 1 John 3, 2, we have homoioi. And then in Romans 8, 29, it says that we'll be conformed to the image of God's Son. There we have akon for image. Both of these words or forms of these words are found in Genesis one twenty six. So this combination of verses, which I just discovered today, it's obviously been discovered by others before, but I just discovered it for myself, and perhaps for Tetelus Thy Phalanx today. This combination of verses, 1 John 3, 2, and Romans 8, 29, alludes, the combination itself alludes to Genesis one twenty six, where God says, let's make man, in the Greek text, in our image, ekona, as he has it in Genesis one twenty six, and likeness, and likeness there is H-O-M-O-I, omega-O-S-I-N. Notice the likeness to that, speaking of likeness. So again, if you put Romans 8.29 from Paul and 1 John 3.2 from John together in a conflation and then point the arrow to Genesis 1.26, you have God's end realized in our conformity to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. We can bear his image in some measure now, but we will bear his perfect likeness in resurrection And that's what we're pressing on toward. At that moment, when we see Jesus, that is with the eyes of our resurrected body, the goal of God proposed in the beginning, Genesis 1.26, will be reached in the end, in the eschaton. So because this goal is not attainable in this world, we have one job throughout our time, in this world, and that is to hold fast to the hope of its attainment when Christ appears a second time, Deuteros, with salvation in Hebrews 9.28. Now, the way I learned how to read the Bible was, as I've said many times before, not to read it straight through, but to read just a little bit of it, say in Romans, till I get to Romans 6.6, 6, and then I follow the cross-reference to Colossians 3.3, where it says you were crucified, reckon yourselves to be crucified. In Romans 6.6, I follow a cross-reference in the margins to Colossians 3.3, which says you died, your life is hid with Christ in God. Then I follow the marginal verse, the marginal references, and go to Galatians 2.20. You were crucified with Christ, nevertheless you live. When I was a young man, this following this trend actually lifted me up out of a state of pretty deep depression. And I realized, wanting to die one day, the Holy Spirit said, you did die, so that's behind you now, Colossians 3.3. That was at that moment I was lifted from a state of some, I guess it was pretty serious, people call it depression today, it was kind of sadness, but... That has been because God is the lifter of my head as he is the lifter of your head. And that's what my prayer is today. If you need your head lifted or your heart lifted. 
And so we'll cross-reference to Colossians. Colossians 1.5, for example, refers to this hope as being on reserve for you in heaven. That means the realization for this hope will be in heaven when we are resurrected, when we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. Peter, now again, it would be worth a study in itself to compare 1 Peter with Hebrews. The phraseology, the language, the goal of the writer, the time period in which it was written, a time of social and political crisis. If you compared Peter, 1 Peter to Hebrews, you would have one of the most profitable studies that you could engage at this time in history in our time. So Peter uses the same language in his first epistle that Paul uses in Colossians 1.5. He says, Praised be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that according to his abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into, notice this phraseology, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and fadeless on reserve for you in the heavens. So you can compare Colossians 1.5 with 1 Peter 1.3 and 4. Colossians again, and here's where we get into the territory of what I call a wider hope, a wide hope. Wide hope refers to a horizon. Horizon is a specialty. Horizons in the study of the Word of God is a theological functional specialty. We're going to advance into horizons a little bit today. Colossians again. This time at 123, and that's a hard focus today, Colossians 123. That means there's a lot of verses on my mind, but there's some that are in bold italic in my brain. Colossians 123 is one of them. And Paul says that be, there, in, the gist of it is that Paul says that us being presented as holy, blameless, and without reproach in his immediate presence and that indicates the judgment seat of Christ, that we are presented holy, blameless, and without reproach in his immediate presence is predicated on the saints not being shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, he says to his readers, that being the very good news that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Please notice that. The gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It had been already in the 50s AD when Paul wrote these words, and I do believe Paul wrote Colossians against the trend and sometimes even the consensus of exegetes. I believe he did write Colossians, and I believe he wrote it before he wrote Romans. I believe he wrote Ephesians, And he wrote Ephesians before he wrote Colossians and Romans. That's my personal conviction. And framing Paul by Douglas Campbell seems to back that up. In fact, I got that conviction from studying his book called Framing Paul. And so once again, please notice that the whole predication for our being presented blameless and without reproach in God's presence is that we are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel. We have one job, one job, 
hold fast. And that Paul says it in a negative way here. Don't be shifted away from the hope of the gospel. Thanks be to God for the victory that was wrought in Jesus Christ, victory over death. And so now we can be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58. So there's another amalgamation. We looked at an amalgamation of verses 1 John 3, 2 and Romans 8, 29. Here's another amalgamation of verses. In an amalgamation of Colossians 1.23 and Romans 10.18, Paul insists that the gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation and that all of creation has heard on top of that. Now, what would happen if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the message about Christ, but what if all of creation has heard the gospel about Christ and effectively, therefore, believed. What Paul is saying here is that salvation is universal. What he's saying here is that the salvation wrought in Christ is so wide as to be global, as to be universal, as to be covering all of humanity in all of its times. You say, I don't see it. That's because you're not standing in the place to see it. You haven't stopped at the overlook to see this wide horizon. In an amalgamation of Colossians 1.23 and Romans 10.18, Paul insists that the gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation and that all of creation has heard. Hearing then, all of creation has effectively believed the gospel, and that's Paul's way of saying all of creation is the object of God's salvation. Paul's words are pretty clear in Romans 10:18. He says, "But I, Paul, say." This is interesting because all the way up to verse from verses 7 to 17, somebody else is talking, and Paul's replying here. In fact, he's replying against what they've said in one sense. "But I, Paul, say, did they really not hear?" In other words, this person says, without a preacher, how can they hear? They're not going to hear without a preacher. And Paul says, really, is that true? Or did they all hear because the gospel is proclaimed by the glory of God in the heavens and everyone under the earth, all creation has heard it. So he said, I say, did they really not hear? Meaning, without a preacher, On the contrary, Paul said, yes, they did. Yes, they have. They have heard. Who has heard? All of creation. Into all the earth, their voice has gone. So Paul doesn't mean that all have literally heard the gospel, but that all have as good as heard it, Because the whole world will be and has been saved in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul cites Psalm 19.4, which is the Septuagint of 18.5 of the Psalms, to show that the horizon for God's salvation is as wide as that of all of his creation. And that, in fact, his salvation is a new creation. All things made new. 
All things past, all things present, all things future, all things, all created reality, made new. Made new because anything in Christ Jesus is a new creation. And all will be in him and therefore a new creation. There's so many ways to say this that haven't been said that everyone in the next generation and preachers should never think that all the good messages have been taken. All the best messages ever preached in the age in which we live have yet to be preached and yet to be proclaimed because insights are going to abound more and more and more. Paul insists on this against an opponent and indeed against an opposition gospel so-called, gospel so-called, which teaches that people are saved one by one only when they believe in their hearts unto righteousness and confess with their mouths unto salvation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the message about Christ, says Paul's opponent in verse 17 of Romans 10. Now, don't get me wrong, Paul agrees with that. Paul agrees that faith comes by hearing, and hearing, by hearing he means the message of Christ. The message of Christ evokes faith in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul agrees, but in verse 18 he says, But I say, because at the same time he strenuously disagrees, that becoming righteous or being saved is a matter of people one by one believing and then confessing and then being baptized or for males at the time in which Paul was preaching according to this other gospel which Paul called no gospel. They have to submit to ritual circumcision and on and on it goes. Paul's gospel is the right gospel. It's the gospel of God about his son. Our confession is about his son. The gospel of God about his son is that his son saves all and embodies all of the creation in his incarnation, in his death, in his crucifixion and death, in his burial, in his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. That's the confession that we confess. Paul wrote that the real gospel of which he had become a servant and a preacher again, that's Colossians 1.23, has been proclaimed <clears throat> in all of creation. He said this in the early 50s A.D., most probably when Colossians was written of the first century. <clears throat> he wasn't exaggerating when he said that. He was seeing. He was placed at a certain standpoint and overlook to see the horizon, the same horizon that the psalm composers sometimes saw. He saw the end to which God's grace was pushing all through history. He saw the redemptive end toward which the Son of God is carrying all things currently. Hebrews 1.3 compared with Ephesians 1.11. He saw the whole earth full of God's glory as the fiery seraphim did in Isaiah chapter 6 because where they were in the throne room of God 
they saw the horizon of the width of the great salvation that God has wrought in Jesus Christ, otherwise known as the width of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. In Psalm 72:19, the Septuagint of 71:19 says, quote, "The whole earth will be filled with his glory, so be it, so be it." In Psalm 98:2, even more importantly, from the standpoint of the psalmist, the Septuagint is 97:2, "The Lord has made known his salvation, he has revealed his righteousness to the nations." The Bible in basic English, if I remember correctly, and I have a partly photographic memory of it, I think the Bible in basic English says that God made known his salvation to all. Because sometimes the word the nations is another way of saying the all of humanity. So, again, all the ends of the earth. We'll just do it in the translation I have from the Greek text. It says, in Psalm 98.2 or 97.2 in the Septuagint, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness to the nations. And in Psalm 98.3, Septuagint 97.2 or 97.3, he has remembered his mercy to Jacob and his reality, aletheia there means reality, to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord. That's not an exaggeration. That is a psalm composer writing from an overlook in which he sees the horizon of salvation. The remarkable passage from Psalm 98, where the Psalm 97 and the Septuagint, is alluded to in Romans 1, 16 and 17 and becomes the very thesis statement for the whole epistle of Romans. So read that sometime, meditate on Psalm 98, 2 and 3 or Septuagint 97, 2 and 3 because there you have the whole thesis for the epistle to Romans and the thesis of the gospel of God about his son and its horizon, the width of that salvation being all the nations, all creation. So this remarkable passage alluded to in the thesis statement of Romans 1, 16 and 17 is astonishing for many reasons, not the least of which is that, that the psalmist wrote this from a standpoint where he saw the universal horizon, the width, W-I-D-T-H, of such a great salvation, the width of the love of Christ in Ephesians 3.19 which surpasses the human knowing of scientism and the so-called enlightenment of the infinitesimally intelligent wokeism of our time and any other human perspective or ideology. Paul's gospel was not only the good... You see, we're learning this while the woke supremacy culture is knocking off people like the cat in the hat and Elmer Fudd, disarming Elmer Fudd. While they're doing these stupid, inane, and moronic, and self-destructive things, we're learning this insight. I'd rather do this. I'd rather learn this. I'd rather know a knowledge past scientism. I'd rather know a knowledge past wokeism or wokest supremacy, which is an evil of our time. And so 
we are learning of the width of such a great salvation, the width of the love of Christ which surpasses the human knowing of scientism and the so-called enlightenment of wokeism and any other human perspective or ideology of our time. Paul's gospel, those, in other words, wokeism and human ideologies cannot recognize this or even see it. And so they're left with their infinitesimally small intellects in trying to cancel things out of the human race and really cancel the human race, everybody except for them, whoever they are. Paul's gospel was not only the good news of salvation by unconditional grace, and it is that. It was and is the very good news of universal grace and universal salvation. I'll say that again, and I'll, say it, I'll repeat it because I like the offense that it brings because it's the offense of the cross today. Paul's gospel was not only of the good news of salvation by unconditional grace, it was and is the very good news of universal unconditional grace. If it's unconditional, it has to be universal, otherwise God is playing favorites. So that's why he said that the very good news, Paul said, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which he said, I was made a minister, Colossians 1.23. So both here in Colossians 1.23 and in Romans 10.18, Paul insists that the gospel has been proclaimed in all of creation and that all of creation has heard, according to Romans 10.18. Hearing, then, all of creation has effectively believed the gospel, and that, all, of course, was done in Jesus Christ, his own faithfulness. In Jesus' faithfulness, all have believed. Again, Paul's statement is not an exaggeration, nor do his statements in Colossians 1.23 and Romans 10.18 reflect a reverie of wild imagination, wishful thinking, or magical thinking. But I, Paul, say, did they not? really here, that is, without a preacher. On the contrary, yes, they have. Into all the earth, their voice has gone. The voice of God through creation has gone through all of creation. And so I say again, where does this come down in Hebrews? I say again, we have one job. And that is to hold fast to our confession of Jesus, the Son of God, who embodies the expectation of the reality of what is already in future world, in the future new creation of all things. When Jesus appears again, and that's a second time in Hebrews 9.28, he will be coming from the future. And he will be taking us back to the future from which he came. So in the future new creation of all things, there is Jesus already. It's a future new creation that involves the hope for things that are in those who believe already. For faith is the hypostasis again. There it is again. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hypostasis. 
faith is the hypostasis, or the reality of those hoped-for things, already in a kind of seed form in us, in our hearts. Subjectively speaking, that is, speaking of faith as the action or possession of a subject or a person. Subjectively speaking, faith is the confident assurance of all these things being summed up in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Faith, I'll say it again, subjectively speaking, is the confident assurance of all things being summed up in Jesus, God's Son, and God's Christ. This is our hope. This hope is all wrapped up in Jesus. Paul couldn't have expressed it more clearly than he did in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, calling Christ Jesus our hope. In 1 Timothy 1.1. In Colossians 1.27, getting back to Colossians, Christ is in Gentiles as well as in Jews. Christ in you, he wrote to the Gentiles in Colossae. Christ in you, also Jews there, is the hope of glory. This hope is not just a deferred consolation because in the meantime and before its total and universal realization and manifestation throughout the universe, in the meantime, as we traverse the wilderness of this age, this clash of the ages, the love of God is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, giving life meaning, purpose, and definition. The Holy Spirit was given to us and indwells us forever, according to Romans 5, 5, John 14, 17, and James 4, 5. This love that's poured out in our hearts and that makes hope not disappointed or just a deferred consolation, this love is not just any old love. It's the very love which God demonstrated in Christ when Jesus died for the ungodly, in Romans 5, 6. When we were yet at the height of our sinfulness, yes, God saw us there from his standpoint in eternity. When we were at the height of our sinfulness, yet at the height of our sinfulness, in Romans 5, 8, Christ died. God, therefore, justifies the ungodly, in Romans 4, 5, because Christ died for the ungodly, in Romans 5, 6. So there is an amazing grace in all of this, but there's also a stunning universalism to the gospel, the real gospel. Since we're interweaving these things into our study of Hebrews, let's consider one more time our one job. You got one job. I don't want to stand before the Lord and have him look at me and say, you had one job. And... You didn't do it. You're here anyways, but I have to not find you without blame here because you didn't fulfill your job. That doesn't mean he's going to send me to hell or anyone else, but I'd rather be commended in that day for doing the one job. It's to hold fast our confession a confession which continually professes this hope, a hope that is now an anchor for our souls, again, during our traversing through the wilderness of the clash of the ages. It's an anchor for our souls in stormy seas because it's connected to Jesus, the Son of God, who lives beyond the curtain 
of the Holy of Holies in heaven as our forerunner. Why? Because he has passed through the heavens. Now where are we? We're back to Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, having a great archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's do our job. One job. Let's hold fast our confession. To hold fast the confession is to have a boast, kalkema. It's to have boldness, parisia. That means freedom of speech, outspokenness, frankness. And the greatest freedom of speech we have is not toward men, but toward God in prayer, as we're going to find out, in intercession in making petitions, in making supplications. Our job is not only to hold on to this confession or this hope, it's to hold it fast. That means firmly in our grip. It's to profess and acknowledge it boldly. It's to hold it to the end. It's to hold it without wavering, says Hebrews 10.23. And without being caused to shift away from it, says Colossians 123. We shift away from it sometimes and are tempted to and will be in the future perhaps to be more acceptable to our contemporaries or more socially pleasing or politically correct in an age of woke superiority and woke supremacy, which is an arrogance that's almost beyond description. The woke culture is rooted in unreality and has no real hope. Some of its devotees speak of Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but it's a different Jesus from the Jesus whom we see crowned with glory and honor, a different Jesus than the one presented by Paul, as 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4 teaches. The disclosure of Jesus as a great archpriest was designed to advance the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and revitalize the community's hope. It did then, it does now. It was to incentivize them and us to hold fast their and our confession of Jesus as the Son of God and to hold fast that confession even in a political climate and a social milieu of growing hostility against it and against all established realities, truths, and virtues. Hebrews is remarkably close to John's apocalypse, and we'll close on that note. Hebrews is remarkably close to John's apocalypse. We've seen that many times before. We'll take a look at it one more time and then close. Increment 115. In the apocalypse, we see the importance of the testimony of Jesus. Now, testimony in Revelation is sort of like confession in Hebrews, and it's sort of like apologia in Philippians. Apology, apology, not in the sense of I'm sorry, but in the sense of presenting a defense for the gospel in Philippians 1.16, perhaps. 1.7 and 1.16. In Revelation 12.11, the brothers and sisters of God's Christ overcame the accuser of our brothers and sisters by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their testimony, and you'll see this in print, taste, we'll look at it right now, taste, T-E-S, that's the article, 
and it's a long E, so it'd be T E S, and then Martyria, M A R T U R I A S. See that word martyr in there? If you pull the U down to a Y, see that? Martyr, Marturias, M A R T U R I A S. That's sort of equivalent to homologia or confession in Hebrews. So we got Rev and we got Hebrews here. And so again, in Revelation 12, notice it says the accuser of the brothers or the brethren, the brothers and sisters, the siblings. This is remarkably close to Hebrews 2.11, those siblings being the brothers and sisters of Christ. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And even as God is not ashamed to call us his people because he has prepared a city for us, or Annapolis, as we learn later on in Hebrews 11, around verse 16. Give me some slack. So, he overcame, they, they overcame, who did? The brothers and sisters of God's Christ, that's believers in this world, overcame the accuser of our brothers and sisters by the blood of the Lamb. Incidentally, it was the accuser of the brothers and sisters of Christ who invented and developed wokeism. The accuser developed it. It's the ideology of the accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the accuser of the brethren whose ideology is called wokeism today. And it's the, it, totally antagonistic to the gospel in which God viewed all people as the objects of his infinite, unrestricted love. So, once again, the author of wokeism and woke supremacy is the accuser of the brethren. And they overcame him, the accuser of the brethren, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. So their testimony, tes martyrius auton, is similar in concept to our confession, which is, again, you'll see in print, tes homologias in Hebrews 3.1. The confession in Hebrews 4.14, and the confession of the hope, tain homologian tes elpidos, which we are to hold fast without wavering in Hebrews 10.23. Please notice the confession of Jesus, the Son of God, and the confession of our hope in Hebrews 10.23. Our hope is Jesus, the Son of God. In Hebrews 3.6, we demonstrate ourselves to be the house of the risen Son if we hold fast the outspokenness and the boast of our hope. That word kateko, then, that we've seen already is our job. Our job is one verb, one job, kateko, K-A-T. E-C-H-O, kateko, that's your job, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast, in Hebrews 3.6, it goes throughout the homily, it's a synonym for krateo, it almost equals, almost equals, K-R-A-T-E-O, krateo, for also means hold fast in Hebrews 4.14 and 6.18. In Hebrews 6.18, the teaching pastor says, quote, 
holding fast to the hope that is exhibited before us. It's exhibited before us because it's a horizon provided in the scriptures of universal salvation. The hope that is exhibited before us. Kratese tes prokemenais elpidos. Didn't pronounce that right at all. You'll see it in print. And the printed page covers a multitude of sins. So in closing, Hebrews 3, 6. 6.11, 6.18, 7.19, 10.23, all can be compared with 1 Peter 3.15, where the addressees, or those who receive that epistle, are also called temporary residents on planet Earth. Resident aliens, call them. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 2.11, compared to Hebrews 11.3, from or 11.13. Hebrews 11.13 is where we actually get the title to the Hebrews. Hebrews are those people that have crossed the river, as it were. They are resident aliens in this world. And so in 1 Peter 3.15, the readers are urged to sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts and be ready to give an answer. This time we have apologian, a P O L O G I A N. Apologian. Kind of like homologian, kind of like martyrian, but it is more like an answer, an official answer before a tribunal, or even before a prosecutor, or even before a, a judge, or a magistrate, or someone with civil authority. So be ready to give an answer. For the hope that is in you, there it is again, the hope that is in you, when asked for a reason for it. Presumably, again, before human tribunals, that's what was happening in Peter's case. Peter was writing about an ordeal, a fiery ordeal that had already begun, and they were on the other side of it in one sense, but still in the midst of it in another sense. The fire in Rome set by Nero, who does what so many politicians do today, and that's play a fiddle while Rome burns. And while that fiery ordeal was among them, he said, be ready. Be ready to give an answer. And the Hebrew writer would say, be ready to do your one job when they call you before the tribunals and ask you what the reason for your hope is. They want you to say, my hope is in Caesar. You will say, my hope is in Jesus Christ. We don't see Caesar crowned with glory and honor. Not now. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So in closing, our hope is Christ Jesus. Our hope is Christ Jesus. To see Jesus crowned with glory and honor with the eyes of our heart is to see our own destiny. For our destiny, predestinated by God, is to be conformed into his image and to be like him. Remember, there are many significant parallels to Hebrews in 1 Peter as there are in Revelation. And you can do this as an amateur. You can do this even as a dilettante in the scriptures. Even if you don't know the Greek or want the Greek or read the Greek, you can read English translations of 1 Peter and Hebrews and pick out phrases, phraseology, and words 
that are common to both of them. It'll be tremendously edifying for you, and you'll find that you can be a student of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, and very soon people are going to realize this, you don't need me. You don't need PTs, apostles, prophets, and teachers. Someday, you're going to be taught by the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean there aren't pastors and teachers throughout the church age or this present age. There has to be. There has to be evangelists. But people should crack a maturity barrier where their need for a pastor teacher is less because they hear from the Holy Spirit. Again, doesn't mean they don't have a pastor teacher. It means that their need for one isn't inordinate anymore. So, remember, the parallels of 1 Peter and Hebrews ought to be considered as a wide-ranging study in itself. Tetelestai phalanx, tetelestai phalanx, however you want to pronounce it. You and I have a wider hope than we did in the 20th century. In the 21st century, we have a wider horizon, a wider hope than we had before. Hold on to this hope. Hold on to the confession of this hope. You got one job. Do it right. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity for exhortation and for exposition of your word. How edifying it is and how pleasant it is to experience your word. And we thank you for it. We pray that it will create magnificent, untold incentive in all the listeners to this message today so that we can continue our lives in fellowship with you, Father, and with your Son, Jesus Christ as companions of Christ. Grant us the grace to overcome the accuser of the siblings of Christ who is so busy today, but whose end is near, and you will crush him under our feet shortly as the God of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.